is Matt Zanker standing in for David Sylvan. Over the next few installments of our podcast, we're going to continue to roll out some of the talks from our new Frontiers event that we held in November with our partners at NASA Glenn Research Center. The event, entitled Innovating for Systemness and Wellbeing, combined fascinating perspectives from healthcare experts alongside NASA scientists, flight directors, and even astronauts. Thanks for listening. This was Part Note 3 of our new Frontiers. So please stay tuned for more on building a new future. Talk to you soon. While recorded virtually, these panels benefited from some visual cues, so you are invited to check out the video on our UH Ventures YouTube channel. We thought the content was worth sharing on our podcast as well. Now let's listen in to a talk from Dr. from UH's Dr. Gotham Rao, Dr. Margaret Larkins Pettigrew, and NASA's Kelly Gilkey. Here is Patricia with the panel introduction. Enjoy. I'm excited to introduce to you our third panel of the day and first panel on well-being. The concept of spending long periods of time in a confined space was a skill usually reserved for astronauts and submarine crews until 2020. What can we learn from NASA about keeping physical, emotional, and social well-being intact from thousands of miles away? How are health systems providing similar tools for its patients and its employees during and after COVID-19? I'll pass the mic back to Matt Zanker, Senior Portfolio Manager of UH Ventures to introduce our panelists. Thanks, Patricia, and good afternoon to everyone. We've got uh, another great panel lined up. Um, and uh, you know, I'll quickly let everyone know who's, who's on the panel. We've got Kelly Gilkey, who is the Biomedical Engineer and Manager of the Human Research Program at NASA Glenn Research Center. We are also joined by Dr. Margaret Larkins-Pettigrew, who is a practicing OBGYN and chair and head of the Office of Community Impact, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion, as well as the director of global programs at University Hospitals. And then we have Go Dr. Gotham Rao, who is the chair of the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health um, and the chief clinician experience officer here at University Hospitals. Um, and you know, just to frame up this topic a little bit, um, you know, and as we've learned so far today in, in all of the sessions, um, there are, you know, lots of non-obvious parallels that, that we've been starting to uncover when it comes to, you know, NASA and healthcare and university hospitals in particular. Um, but this topic today really kind of jumped off the page at us. And as we were um, planning for this day, we thought, well, we can't not cover, um, you know, how, you know, all the parallels in terms of telehealth as well as social isolation, physical well-being, um, mental well-being. There's all kinds of things that I think healthcare can learn from NASA and potentially vice versa. Um, and you know, just a little bit more specific. You know, I think uh, NASA has been you know working on a form of telehealth. Um, you know, probably since Alan Shepard launched, um, and all the way up until you know having uh, you know astronauts on space stations for six months to a year or more at a time. Um, so that evolution is, is certainly interesting to us. And then I think, you know, and COVID is obviously forcing us to start to think about telehealth more and remote monitoring and how we might um, take care of our patients that are, you know, maybe five miles away versus uh, thousands of miles away in the case of NASA. Um, and then as far as, you know, social isolation, we're all going through some, some very, you know, difficult times right now and trying to stay confined to our homes. And, who better to learn from, uh, you know, than, than NASA when it comes to training um, astronauts or their employees to manage these types of 
uh, these types of environments and being isolated on a space station for so long. Um, and then, and again, we've got, we'll also get into the stress uh, that we're all under, whether it's, um, you know, the pandemic, as well as, you know, even just the stress of staying alive and surviving and thriving on a, on a space station or, or on a shuttle. So um, we'll, we'll jump right into this conversation. And it would be great, Kelly, if we could start with you, just to, to, to set the foundation and paint a little bit of a picture of how astronauts are monitored when they're on the International Space Station, really focusing on how we're how we're keeping their physical well-being in check, um, and also, you know, how do you, how does NASA, you know, mitigate concerns prior to launch, you know, during the mission, and also when they return? And just because I always find it fascinating, I think if, if you could tell us a little bit too about zero gravity and how that impacts astronaut health, that would be great. During the long, long-duration spaceflight missions, our astronauts meet weekly for private medical conferences with their assigned flight surgeon for wellness check-in. Um, NASA's Human Research Program also collects a variety of physio physiological and psychological data um, during spaceflight missions to help NASA and our international partners understand some of the long-term effects of microgravity on astronaut health. So the, the astronaut selection process itself is very competitive. So NASA screens astronauts not only for their academic background and certainly their physical fitness, but also for their skills in teamwork, leadership, and communication. So NASA assigns astronauts to the mission based on a variety of different factors, one of which is how well the crew will likely interact with each other. So you mentioned uh, wanting to know a little bit more about some of the effects of microgravity on the human body. So there's quite a host of changes. There's physiological changes uh, that include muscle atrophy, bone loss, you get fluid shifts. So you'll typically see astronauts with really puffy faces and skinny legs. That's because their fluids are no longer being pulled down to their feet by gravity. So this, this puts more pressure um, on the head as well as the eyes and about a greater volume of, of blood in the heart. So there's lots of changes that happen. Um, there's also psychological changes that may emerge due to being isolated and being confined. So I challenge you to pick two to five people that you'd like to share a confined space with for six to 12 months. Um, in addition to the different gravity fields and isolation and confinement, NASA is also concerned about unique risks due to being in a hostile, closed environment. There's space radiation all around, and they can also be very far away from Earth. So if they need help, the astronauts need to be prepared to deal with that on their own. Um, the International Space Station, or the ISS, is about the size of a six-bedroom house. But our vehicles that are going to be going back to the moon and to Mars will be much, much smaller. Interesting. So yeah, I'm, I'm curious, and this is kind of a question for both of you, uh, Margaret and Gotham, but um, the, the, the physical manifestations right now of, of you know, your patient population being confined um, to, to their home, and I know that um, you know, it's not, it's not going to be the same as what microgravity is, and, and obviously it's very different, but I'm wondering if there are some, you know, physical issues that have popped up in the population or things that we should be careful of, and I guess if we can start with you, Margaret, in terms of what you've seen. Well, I think the biggest uh, thing that I'm seeing is, is weight gain, 
And if you think about, you know, being obese and all of the things that go uh, along with that, and, Ga and Gotham could actually address this very well, that people are not afraid to go out. They're not exercising as much as they should. And when I see and talk to my patients, um, that's probably the biggest thing that they're encountering is that when I was reading about astronauts, in fact, that they don't have that issue. In fact, they lose weight, like just the opposite where, um, or, you know, my patients are not getting out. And um, when it comes to my obstetric patients, of course, you don't want them to gain a significant amount of weight while they're, you know, they're uh, in pregnancy. So um, I'm, I'm finding that that is the biggest thing that is challenging folks because they don't want to get out and do the exercise and they're ending up spending a lot more time in, in house and eating more than they actually should be. And so they, uh, they have some weight gain. And, and as it relates to HIV patients, and they have a lot of comorbidities already. And so obesity is a major issue that, uh, that I am encountering just because of the lack of, of um, getting outside and doing some exercise and, and, and socializing with other people who do exercise. And so that's the biggest thing that I'm finding around physical activity. Got it. Gotham, anything you would add? Yeah, I, don't, I just want to echo some of Margaret's comments. I've seen that as well. But I think you can think about the impact of the lockdown on, on patients in, in different ways. So the majority of my patients are older seniors, almost all African-American. Uh, economic challenges are significant among them. And they all face the same consequences. One is they are delaying or deferring necessary care. So the worst example I can give you is a gentleman who said, oh, I'm feeling fine, I feel fine, but I have this terrible rectal bleeding and I'm afraid to come to the hospital. So there's a lot of fear about seeking healthcare right now, which can be devastating. And the second thing, and I think Margaret's hinted at that, is the social isolation itself has a toll on physical health. Um, so for a lot of our folks going to the grocery store, going to visit a relative, even coming to the doctor's office to talk to me is their primary form of socialization during a week. And we're to start to take that away, people. We're saying participate in virtual health, which has its own challenges with, with that population in particular. But you're taking something away, and that means that problems such as depression and the physical manifestations of depression uh, become, become quite significant as well. And then, as Margaret said, there is the effect of the isolation itself. What, what are you doing if you're not going out? Sometimes you're eating. Uh, sometimes you're watching a lot of television, so sleep has been terribly disrupted from uh, among a lot of our patients. So there's those physical manifestations as well. So it's pretty pretty multifaceted as well. Yeah, interesting. And and you you know we've all talked about the social isolation a little bit. And um, you know Margaret, uh, you know I'm, I'm I'll turn to you, but I'm curious of the effects of social isolation um, based on what Gotham just mentioned. And um, you know what advice do you have for you know, the providers um, that, that are your colleagues in terms of uh, managing that and being able to give patients the tools to, uh, to manage their, their, the, the stress from social isolation. So we're dealing with two populations. One is our own colleagues who um, every single day, they're all, everyone who works in the healthcare system is the first line worker from the environmental services to the people who are answering the phone calls. And so they are experiencing social isolation themselves because they can't be wrong. Their relatives, they're very fearful of what they're gonna bring home to their children, um, as well as to some of their other relatives. So we are really encouraging within our hospital system to really make sure that they're doing some things together within the hospital. We're offering massages, we're doing those things to really expose them um, to one and to their colleagues while they're in the hospital system. And then as far as our, our, uh, our providers, we really want them to, of course, limit their contact, but they're doing a lot by Zoom. They're really communicating by, a lot by phone. 
And so we wanna make sure that they're staying healthy as well as, as relates to social isolation. From my patient perspective, you know, telehealth is a wonderful thing when it relates to how people can stay in their own homes and they can be comfortable about having visits in their home home. But when you work with a, a marginalized population like I do, they don't have access to, you know, to iPads and, and, and uh, desktops where they can actually communicate and have a telehealth visit. That's one thing. Um, and then the other issue is I work in OBGYN. So these patients need to be seen. They need to be examined. And so they are, they need to come in to see us. And so um, that's another thing just to get the, uh, get them to understand that they can trust to come into the space where we are because as uh, patients of HIV, they are also challenged with immunosuppression. So there's, it's a whole bag of worms when you talk about how we help them deal with these issues of social isolation and when, in, when most of us are very people oriented. And so they've had some major struggles around being alone and making sure that they can reach out to people, not only us as providers, but also their own family members. So um, helping them with that, navigate that by Zoom or even flip phones that we've been, we've been able to give them things that they can actually work with. It's been a really positive thing for them. Right. Yeah, so Kelly, I'm, I'm curious, you know, based on what, what Margaret and Gotham have shared, and, uh, you know, I know that NASA has, has had to, you know, manage social isolation or, you know, probably really study the effects of that and how you might manage it and mitigate it on a, uh, on a mission. And so um, just curious from you how, how NASA has, um, has managed that in the past and also, you know, anything that I know that NASA has been called on lately as, you know, to give some advice uh, during these times and, and any that you in particular have taken to heart that you would want the, uh, the audience to, to hear? Yeah, sure. So once, once a crew is selected for a specific mission, they spend a lot of time together training. So this training is really intended to optimize the team dynamics and see how they work together when they're under stress. So NASA certainly does recognize the challenge of astronauts feeling isolated during missions, and we do have a variety of mechanisms to help them feel less isolated. So astronauts have the ability to call, video, email their family, their friends. They have time together each day that they're supposed to spend with the crew. So as an example, mealtimes in particular are, are crucial for having that time together. The astronauts are also very busy during the day. Um, they're doing science experiments. They're doing maintenance activities. They have chores. They need to dust and vacuum and keep the, the space station clean. Um, each astronaut can also select personal items to take with them, whether they're photographs, um, musical instruments. We've had guitars go off. We've had bagpipes, um, stuffed animals, wedding rings. They can take movies and music to listen to and watch off their computers. Um, astronaut Scott Kelly was up on ISS for a year, and he recently wrote an article in the New York Times um, sharing some of his tips on how he dealt with isolation. Um, he really stressed the importance of like having a hobby, uh, keeping a journal was helpful for him, exercising. We have a, a slew of exercise equipment up on station. Um, he encouraged people to go outside. That's really not an option when you're up on International Space Station, but just going out and being in nature. Um, staying connected with your family and your friends and keeping a schedule, but also pacing yourself and making, making some time for fun. Um, he and several of his crewmates um, had movie nights 
that they would binge watch Game of Thrones together. So lots of similarities, definitely. Interesting. And I remember in one of our previous conversations, um, you know, you talked about the, uh, you know, plant life on the on the space station, even as a as just a representation of nature. Um, and curious if you had any any insights on that. Yeah, so right now NASA has a variety of plant experiments up on station and some of the crew members have really um, shown that they've they've gotten mental health benefits from that. Very similar to, you know, going and, and having some gardening time and getting that therapeutic benefit. And some of them just could, you know, not care much. I guess those are the ones that don't have green thumbs, but sure. definitely. Sure, and, and turning to you, Gotham, um, you know, how, how do you think our physicians have fared during this time, our physicians in particular? Um, you know, I think, uh, and we've heard, I've heard you speak um, in previous uh, talks about pajama time, and that mm -hmm. is usually about doctors, you know, working late into the night just to do their documentation every night, and now I feel like, you know, pajama time has taken on a new meaning, um, mm -hmm. and Curious, you know, I, and it's probably, and it's a sad thing to think about, but maybe physicians are kind of used to social isolation because of their workload. And so curious if they're, if this, you know, how, how this has impacted physicians and their, and their well-being. Um, and even if there are any kind of silver linings um, in, the, in the new way that we're kind of practicing. Yeah, so, so that's a great question. So first we ask them. So we, we have uh, had a, a weekly wellness survey of 200 random physicians and advanced practice providers that goes out every week and tells me what the level of, what, what the main drivers of, of, um, of well-being are, whether it's workload or interactive peers, et cetera. So we converted that to a COVID-19 specific wellness survey. And now goes out to 400 randomly selected providers every single week. So we are, we're actually asking. And it's curious, Matt, because we assumed it would be things such as, I'm scared of COVID-19, or I don't feel I can look after my patients safely anymore, or I can't interact with my learners, or I can't do my research or teaching the way they used to. And all those are concerns to some extent, but they're not the most paramount thing. Financial stress and job security are way down the list, but this is, this is primarily physicians who, who generally are secure in that respect. The number one cause of stress among our physicians is inability to participate in my usual stress-relieving activities, which they mean going to the gym, interacting with family, going out to dinner, having a drink in, in, in a tavern or in a bar or something like that. So it's probably pretty similar across the board. It's always number one every single week. That having been said, if you look at levels of stress, we, when we measure it on a scale of one to 10, um, and our physicians from the outset were around five. It's going up again now. We're up six in the last week or so, but it hasn't spun out of control. So our providers are stressed, but UH has, I think, has, has coped extremely with it from a system standpoint. Margaret had, had mentioned a few of the interventions we have in place. So overall, we're doing pretty well. We're certainly not doing any worse than, than people in other professions. And we have ways of measuring our, our levels of stress and how people are coping. Yeah. And just to push down on that a little bit more in terms of coping, I know, um, you know, there's kind of a difference between coping with stress and then also are giving people the tools to cope with stress, but also from a system perspective, how you might actually just remove stress from the equation. So um, can you talk a little bit about the difference between that and how, um, you know, you approach, um, you know, that, that, that issue? Yeah. 
So that's the most important part of my role. So there are different approaches to dealing with provider experience. We like to use that term instead of provider wellness or well-being because that's the preferred term among physicians. Um, one is you can give them resources to cope with their jobs. So it's like the analogy is, you know, if you, if you give someone a terrible working work life and you say, well, we've got this online program to help you cope with the stress of your work life, that's often met with a lot of cynicism. So you have to look at the root causes of the problem. And we started with that in a very scientific approach. What is the drive of provider satisfaction in our system? We started almost two years ago. We found it was the EMR, uh, which we've had significant challenges with as the number one driver. Um, the other things were you know, not being recognized for academic contributions, uh, not having a, a direct gateway to leadership. These are the kinds of things which would help people cope with the rest of their lives. So it's important to have these other alternatives available, such as Connor, uh, the, the Connor Integrative Center has a number of things to help people to cope. We've got to have both. You have to have a systems-based approach to it, as well as, uh, as, as well as an individualized approach. And one of the things they had um, mentioned over and over again is a lack of sense of community. So one of our interventions which has now been suspended due to COVID-19 was something called Rejuvenation Tuesdays, which I just copied from Mayo Clinic, essentially, which brings together uh, physicians and other providers in the evening with alcohol in relaxed conversations about whatever they want. Uh, it's been, uh, it's been a very, it was very successful until we had to stop, but that's the thing. So actually asking the providers, is it a need that would help them feel um, that their work lives have improved, I think is, is the key step. Interesting. So Kelly, turning to you and, and, you know, and how, you, how NASA really tries to work, you know, have a system approach to, to reducing the stress, I think you know, we think of astronauts and probably many of us think of phys physicians too as almost machines that, um, that you, know, you tell them what to do and they'll do it and you know, stress is not really an issue. But there's definitely, um, I think we can all acknowledge there's a human inside of that spacesuit. Um, and so curious how NASA has has worked with that um, and managed that. And then also, um, you know, I, I've read a lot about kind of the trust between the flight surgeon and the astronaut and how that, uh, that kind of relationship helps to uh, manage, manage the stress of the astronaut as well as the health. Um, yeah, so once the astronaut is selected for a mission, they are assigned to a flight surgeon. So developing that relationship between the astronaut and his or her doctor is, is definitely very important and establishing that trust early on is key. Um, during, during the mission, the flight surgeons are available 24-7 and they provide support to the astronauts from the ground, um, the mission control center. So there's, there's different ways astronauts manage stress during long duration missions. Um, some of them I've mentioned already and um, Dr. Gao has, has as well. The, um, having those communications with your family and your friends on Earth and also with your crewmates. Um, we've had some interesting personal threats go up as well. Um, sometimes they'll toss a football around or a baseball and, you know, just have some, some fun together in the space station. Um, exercise is another really big way that astronauts manage their stress. We have a treadmill up there, resistive exercise device, we have a stationary bike. Um, so that's been incredibly helpful for, for many of them. Um, there's other small things that happen. Uh, there's wake-up calls that come from mission control. They will tailor the wake-up songs to individual astronaut song preferences. 
and occasionally we have resupply vehicles that bring up um, food and experiment supplies. They will often bring up care packages from family. Got it. And so Margaret, you know, um, just turning to you and, and, you know, Kelly mentioned uh, a little bit about the trust and, and how, you know, that there's a relationship that you need to form with the, with the flight surgeon um, before, before taking off. So you can kind of manage everything while you're up there. And now that um, everybody is turning to remote and it, and it sounds like you, you still need to bring people in on a regular basis. Um, any, anything that you've learned in terms of, you know, generating trust between um, your individual patients, but also even thinking of UH and the community, how, how do we build that trust so we can continue to get them here so they can take care of themselves? Um, any insights there that you've uncovered? So trust has, of course, been a major uh, component of all physicians and uh, partnering with their patients. Um, trust is essential in order for patients to be compliant, to really uh, make sure that you know as a physician and as a provider that um, you're, you're both in this together as partners. In this time, of course, with COVID and with many of the things that are happening in our country, trust has been a real challenge for many of our institutions. And we have taken it head on to really make sure that our patients know that we are open, we are available, and that we really want to continue to partner with them um, to grow that trust and continue that trust so that they are continuing to take care of their own self-care. Um, so some of the things that we have, uh, we've been doing, uh, we have our nurses very much involved in, in um, making sure they call our patients before their appointments to make sure even if they're scheduled for telehealth appointments that they are going to be available. We um, make sure that we are spending more time. We have more time on as tele, uh, in telehealth when we're speaking to our patients to really take time to answer some of their questions, to kind of tease out a little bit more of their concerns. You know, but it is still a major issue. We have you know, COVID and, and what people think about the, the, the virus itself and whether it even exists. But we also have a lot, another pandemic in this country where we have this whole issue of racism, et cetera. So on earth, we have a lot of major issues around the trust issue. But it's our responsibility as physicians, no matter who we are, we ta we've taken that oath to really um, make sure that we concentrate in that, in that particular area of our expertise to make sure our patients understand that we are here for them. We want to do the best to make sure that they have longevity and productivity in life. And so trust is a major issue. So reaching out to them, being involved in the community, going out into the community versus them coming into us. You know, a lot of our testing centers that are out there, um, just making sure that we're, we are very transparent and honest about what's going on in um, the lives of our, our health providers as well as our patients. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. <clears throat> and we're right up at right, right up at time here. And I was just, I, I don't want to lose the last question here. So we'll do that. We'll treat this kind of like a lightning round if you could. Um, but we'd love to hear from you. And, and Margaret, you've already touched on this a little bit of what your your vision is for uh, for healthcare and what we could be doing. Um, so I'll start with you, Gotham, or Gotham, if you can just mention, you know, what's your ultimate hope uh, for, for when it comes to well-being or um, the experience of our providers, if you could put a, put a date on it and say 2025 or 2030, what does that, um, what does it look like? So it, it looks pretty straightforward. So we've distilled all the massive amounts of data we've got in studies to three things that people want. They want to have a sense of being uh, rewarded or feel rewarded for mm -hmm. having made a positive impact on at least one person's life every single day. So Margaret talks about trust, and that's a really important one. If I said, look, you know, 
I, I understand you a little bit. I understand why it's hard for you to get your medication. And the patient acknowledges that, feels good about it. That's a good day for me. The second thing um, that they want is they want to be valued for their contributions outside of just seeing patient after patient. They want to know that their teaching is recognized or their research is recognized. The third thing is very simple. They want to make it home by 7 p.m. so they can have dinner with their family. So I think we can get there. I hope it will take till 2030. But if we keep those three goals in mind and stay laser focused on it, I think we can certainly get there sooner than that. Great. How about you, Kelly? Any, any moonshots that, that even NASA has when it comes to well-being of their astronauts or health? Um, or even, you know, even if as a patient, what do you want healthcare to look like? Um, you, you can choose. Um, I guess I'll keep it on the NASA focus, but, um, you know, I will say, you know, right now, International Space Station, is, it's so close. Um, it's only 200 miles away. Um, as we look to, you know, people going further and further away, you know, we're really looking at emerging medical and telemedicine technologies and, and how we can enable the astronauts to um, have the equipment they need for diagnosing and treating medical conditions that might happen. Um, the human research program is also looking at how virtual training techniques can provide like just-in-time training um, and NASA is looking at how we can use computational models to help inform what what medicines what equipments and items are most likely to be needed based on what medical equipments are likely to occur so it's, it's a really exciting time. In spite of COVID and the pandemic, this is all temporary. Um, but NASA, we, we've got our, our eyes on the moon and we're looking forward to sending the, the first man and the next woman back to the surface of the moon. That's great. Margaret, any, any moon shots you would like to add? I think that um, both Kelly and, uh, and uh, Gotham have really summed it up. You know, I, I'm so excited to hear this, you know, getting home by seven for dinner. I think that that's what we all want to do. So um, I think that we just continue to work in these spaces, uh, knowing that we get a lot of self-gratification from all that we do for both, you know, our, our astronauts as well as our patients and our, our employees, and that we continue to um, try to be our best selves so that if we are our best selves, then we help others be their best selves. And that's great. That's that's it. Yeah, we, we can start our own space race of who gets, if, if uh, NASA can get to Mars before we can get our physicians home before seven o'clock. <laughs> I think we originally wanted six o'clock, but everyone said, no, that's not going to be, that's not going to work. <laughs> we'll make that Mars. <laughs> seven o'clock or seven o'clock will be the moon. Six o'clock will be Mars. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, everybody. It's, it's really been a pleasure. And, uh, you know, hopefully we can continue this conversation. I think we, we definitely have a lot to learn from each other here. And uh, thank you, Gotham. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you, Margaret. And I'll send it back to Patricia. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. This was part three of our New Frontiers. So please stay tuned for more over the next few weeks. Talk to you soon. <laughs>